Hello everybody and welcome to Public Discord, the interactive podcast. My name's Oven, I'm your host and today I'm joined by Peter again. Welcome back Peter, uh, how have you been? Hi, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I've been pretty well, although since doing a bit of prep for this, I am now very depressed. Um, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Thank you for encouraging me to go down that path. Uh, for those of you who don't know what the topic is today, we are just going to talk about politics and how the country has fared, uh, that is the UK, since the Conservative Party has taken over. And we'll basically start with Brexit and go from there and... Yeah, that's why Pete's a little bit depressed, but uh, hopefully the more people know about how bad a job they're doing, the more thought you give to to giving them your vote in the future or uh, assessing other options, basically. Well, what do you say, Pete? Yeah, it, it'll hopefully, you know, after this, give you a bit more of an informed choice. You know, most people go off their gut and what they know from the BBC news in the morning before they go to work, you know, and that's fine. I was doing that for the last couple of years since the last election because, you know, it was depressing finding out all this stuff. Ignorance <laughs> is bliss. But yeah. yeah, you're right. An informed vote is a good vote. There we go. Okay, so let's talk about Brexit. So Brexit formally happened, uh, was it the 1st of January 2020? Yes, yeah, we, we uh, uh, ended the transition period and began a, a new phase. Um Actually, no, sorry, it was, I can't remember if that's actually when we signed the agreement. That was right, wasn't it? On the, just after Christmas, we signed yeah. the agreement with the EU. Then the transition period began. And then it was it was a year, wasn't it? So the transition period ended at the start of 2021. Okay. So obviously since then, a lot has happened with COVID. Um, and there are some issues that would have affected any government. Um, but there are other issues where the deal itself has kind of come back to bitten people in the bum and it's not really a surprise considering you know the lies that people were fed but uh when you kick us off pete okay so well yeah um you know number one i suppose uh, trade was supposed to be unaffected or improved wasn't it really yeah and ultimately the uh, the deal that was agreed was uh, a hard brexit you know we left the single uh, market and the customs union and so now there are trade barriers between us and the eu and we've got a trade agreement the trade and cooperation agreement the tca which outlines you know what uh, what tariffs are in place what what things for which there are checks and uh, for a large quantity of industries there are now obstacles to trading with the eu and an example of that would be the uh, the exports of food products to the EU, which after the end of the transition period, it dropped by 50%. Oh, <laughs> so wow. that was a loss of £2 billion of exports to the EU, which is obviously, you know, not yeah. great. It's, that is a disaster. Um, <laughs> they didn't tell you about that uh, cost, did they? <laughs> no, uh, you know, and so that's as a result of... Um, uh, extra checks it's the difficulty of exporting and it's uh, tariffs on certain foodstuffs so there are now tariffs on if you want to export meat or milk to the eu there are uh, now additional costs to the people buying those from you so obviously that's reduced um the quantities that they're buying yeah of course <laughs> uh, so that's the number one issue i would say that's the most uh, sort of immediately contrary to what we were told would happen yeah yeah, it's, uh, it's not an ideal situation. And like buying stuff in, I've had multiple imports from Germany since having to pay VAT on them like you would if you're ordering something from the States and it's just markedly worse compared to what the situation was before. And 
I think people forgot to consider that as well. Like, but there you go. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. And the, so all of the importers have been having to deal with that at quite short notice because, of course, um, we didn't have a lot of time to prepare. Uh, so that's that's obviously not good. Uh, there's just been generally negative impacts on the economy as well because of Brexit. Um, there's a, a study that's been updated regularly over the last few years, which has been uh, been running a doppelganger economy. Of So they've been uh, extrapolating our uh, uh would be growth had we not left the EU and compared that to our growth uh, since the Brexit vote. And uh, they keep updating it. It started out as being uh, a, a cost to growth in the economy of £300 million a week. Uh, so that's <laughs> le less growth. Yeah. Uh, last year it went up to £350 million and now it's at nearly £400 million a week cost to the growth in the economy as, wow. uh, versus what would have happened. And obviously that's there's no counterfactual to prove that. So they're basing it on a bunch of assumptions, but it, it, their methodology seems quite tight. And, uh, you know, it's, obviously we've demonstrated slower growth than uh, other European uh, countries since then. So it's sort of borne out in reality. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really a, a surprise that it's been worse, but uh, it's quite a quite a big amount to be worse by. Well, you know, it was how much money were we sending to the EU according to that bus? <laughs> oh, 300 million a week for the NHS or whatever it was. Yeah. So it's. It's very ironic in that regard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so what else has uh, has changed? Uh, well, uh, obviously, uh, immigration policies have changed. Yep. So now you can't live and work here, which is as what uh, in combination with COVID, uh, with people leaving to go back home during the uh, pandemic, they just haven't come back. Uh, the population of the UK has dropped significantly. And uh, it was a few months ago I read this, but the population of London dropped by 700 million people. Seven, <laughs> what? 700,000 700, people. 700,000, yeah. <laughs> I've to carry the Y there. We don't yeah, have that many people. That <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's just indicative of the kind of population decrease that we've suffered. And, you know, obviously that's now been borne out as we've opened up following the pandemic in the form of labour shortages. You know, we've got crops rotting in the fields, We've got uh, a significant lack of nurses and doctors in the NHS. Yep. Um, we haven't got, obviously, um, uh, hauliers driving trucks around, taking stuff to places. So this is obviously causing huge disruption in the um, uh, supply chain of, of food and fuel, as we all know. <laughs> yeah, of um, course. Uh, and so this is having effects all over the place. It's affecting literally everything. And, uh, you know, it's th these um, labour shortages are actually everywhere, as, as are supply chain shortages. But... They are exacerbated by Brexit because of the immigration issue, um, as well as rules to things like cabotage and the ability of trucks to move around within a territory and pick up and drop off shipments. Yeah. Um, so all of that has been affected by Brexit, and which has even had effects on things like um, our ability to treat sewage. You know, it even goes <laughs> down to stuff like that. So uh, our supply of ferric sulfates to treat uh, uh, effluent have been disrupted, which has led to the government agreeing with uh, sewage treatment plants to discharge water, which hasn't been properly treated, back into the water table. So we are literally oh, no. surrounded by our own feces <laughs> <laughs> as a result of Brexit. <laughs> oh, God. It's, it's, it's pretty bad. Um, so back to the immigration issues. Uh, so I thought people who worked here could apply to stay and work here. Um, further you're saying they just haven't come back since uh pandemic and all the rest of it so so what is the issue why aren't they coming back 
Well, they, for one thing, you know, being in the UK and sending money back with in the form of remittances to your home country following the Brexit vote, um, that's less attractive because of the uh, drop in the value of the pound afterwards, you know. And, and okay. generally speaking, the suffering the UK economy as a result of Brexit, as we described, there's 300 million pounds uh, a week that we've lost in growth. Uh, all that bears out in the value of the pound and therefore remittances are worthless. So that's one reason. Okay. Um, people don't need to stick around because actually they can probably have a slightly better job, higher quality of life, maybe not quite as well paid, but in the country where they're from, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's 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 partly it's a, a political reason, you know. If you have been living in the UK for the last few years and you know you're surrounded by all of this uh, language around uh, immigrants and them not being wanted and you know uh, wanting to reduce immigration. And, and the increase in racism and hate crime since the Brexit vote, you know, it's it's a less pleasant place to be as a result of it, you know. So that's that's, that's another reason, I would say. Um, but people, you know, who were already here and which can apply to the um, the scheme the UK government has for staying in the UK, that, you know, technically they can stay if they want legally. I think if they were here living for a certain period of time before a certain date, I can't remember the details of that, but yep. nonetheless... Uh, of those, for example, 700,000 that left London, a lot of them will have been people that had a right to stay and, you know, they haven't come back. Yeah, just because it's just not attractive anymore for them to come back. Yeah, I mean, so for example, um, before Brexit, um, we had a hiring of about 9,000 EU nurses into the NHS each year. So there's always churn in the NHS, we're always hiring and yeah. people are retiring or... or whatever, leaving the industry. So pre-Brexit, uh, we were hiring about 9,000 a year. Uh, this year, just gone, we hired 810. Wow. <laughs> That's <laughs> quite, quite the deficit there. <laughs> and yeah, we have got a massive nursing shortage. Uh, we've got a, a deficit of 40,000 nurses at the moment. So, this, you know, that immigration question has, has led to this uh, issue that we're now having and we didn't have before. So... Some of these jobs uh, that these uh, EU migrants were doing, uh, a lot of them are deemed undesirable by people here in the UK. Uh, so there's a shortage of lorry drivers, like fruit pickers. Nursing is a very difficult job, considering you know how much you get rewarded for it in terms of you know monetary reward. Um, so what was the UK government's plan? What were the the Conservatives' plan to? To backfill this or did they just not expect the the mass exodus that's taken place that's a good question uh i personally don't really think they had a plan <laughs> <laughs> um you know you're right these are, are jobs that are, are aren't fun and which up to now we've been uh filling with uh people from ever further east in the eu yeah so first it was, it was poland after they uh you know entered the free movement area in sort of 2003, 2004. But, you know, they've got steadily higher wages as they've moved in and spread across Europe. And it's, there are opportunities for them that, the, you know, with their language skills and their work ethic, that they're able to be paid a lot more than and don't need to work in a field or um, pack boxes or, or work, in, work as a truck driver. So we've gone ever further east to supply our sort of addiction to cheap labour, as it were. And that's instead of... Um, having a labor market where we pay people properly and give them good working conditions and workers rights uh, and actually police those you know in order to get higher wages so now that uh, we're not having this supply of labor anymore which we've effectively artificially cut off there just 
isn't anyone to do these jobs. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I suppose some Brexiteers would have thought that, you know, maybe the UK populace would have stepped in to do some of these jobs. Um, or that they could have a, a, an industry-specific visa scheme, for example, that would backfill it. But I think all of that has been made much worse by the, the pandemic, which obviously wasn't ever part of the plan. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things where uh, in order for capitalism to continue churning and growing, it just leads to further exploitation of uh, the global south and other yeah. Yeah, people from worse backgrounds. And, and people here know the work is bad and the conditions are bad and they don't want to do it because it's it's taking the mick and the rewards aren't justified it may be better for people who are coming from even worse conditions and they've kind of dragged the uh the standard of the workplace down because it's better than the where they came from even though the people here wouldn't see it that that it's that good or acceptable so it's a bit of a catch-22. You can get people to come in and work, but then they're just more exploited and the general standard of the workplace drops because of it. Um, and in order for companies to grow and continue to, to make profits, they have to further further trim the margins in their costs and that inevitably leads to worse working conditions without proper yeah. employee protections in place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's quite interesting in terms of, um, yeah, keeping those wages low and therefore having so cheaper products. Um, so if you paid them more, the products would cost more, but more people would have more money to buy them. So uh, as you say, there's a sort of catch-22 <laughs> going on and it's, it's, it's complicated with the economy and everything, but workers' rights and working conditions should be something that we aspire to improve in a, in a nice society. You know, we yeah. shouldn't just, as you say, expect to exploit people from poorer backgrounds because they're willing to do it. <laughs> I think I think this this has got a I've got a topic coming up in a future episode which we'll, we can get into this properly so uh, it's good stuff. Um okay so general cost of goods has been increasing um and that's and obviously not helped by supply shortages and all the rest of it. So um another consequence of Brexit that I mean I think people generally knew about this the remain campaign did say this I'm sure but they just obviously weren't as vocal as as the leave campaign do you, do you think there was a a shirking of responsibility or a, a complacency in the leave uh, campaign you mean in the remain campaign the remain campaign yeah sorry oh <laughs> uh, yeah absolutely i mean uh when it happened there was a lot of soul searching afterwards and it you know it's definitely the case that david cameron and co uh, didn't really put the effort that was needed into uh, convincing the British public to vote to remain in the EU. You know, as you say, they were complacent. They just expected people to stick with the status quo, um, which is catastrophic, really. And and this is uh, uh, as as compared to the to Leave campaign, which was you know a very uh, vocal, very organised, uh, very passionate in its uh, yeah, very emotional. Yes, it, it very much played on the 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 gut feelings of people it was very nationalistic and populist and you know actually appealed to the darker instincts of people when it came to things like immigration uh it's all or rather that's definitely one of the more depressing aspects of it which is certainly underestimated by the remain campaign i would absolutely say that <laughs> i've heard um it's similar to the whole trump movement in 2016 the same year and uh people were saying it gave you know 
um, nationalists, white supremacists, white nationalists, like license to go mask off racist. Like, here we go, boys. We've 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 got a chance here. Let's take our country back and all the rest of it. And kind of, as you said, incidents involving racism and abuse have risen and hostility towards immigrants uh, and it's all been enabled by the rhetoric of the leave campaign and the acceptance that it's gained in the mainstream which is very sad to see yeah and it's going to take a long time to repair that and it's you know you could always say pre the vote that maybe there was an undercurrent of that and there was a, a what well, of course it must have been there they yeah. were just suppressing yeah. it yeah and you're right it, it gave them the green light to be more public about those sort of um out-of-date and intolerant attitudes um but it it's funny that whole like uh, since 2008 financial crash the uh effects on the economy have have been really poor especially in the uk it's been dire since Mm. 2008 um and it makes people worse off and you know if people are worse off they turn inwards they they become more tribalistic they become more wary of outsiders and all of that uh, combined with being given the opportunity to vote to leave your nearest trading block and reduce immigration. Um, I think if we hadn't had the 2008 financial crash, I think if we'd had the Brexit vote, people would have felt like uh, the world was working in their favour in, in its current form. But, you know, clearly a lot of people didn't think that. They thought the EU didn't benefit their lives at all. So obviously they voted to leave it. Yeah, it's 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 a funny... I saw a, a comment... Um... I think England were playing in a friendly game in Middlesbrough and uh, this was months ago. It could have been before the Euros even. And uh, the players took took a knee before the kickoff and a lot of the fans were booing. And there were some comments online about, you know, how these racist Northerners were, you know, sharing disrespect and, you know, they did, they're a disgrace and all this, that and the other. But... I saw another comment further down and it was it was talking about how these working class people from uh, less uh, well-off parts of the country are fed the narrative that immigrants are stealing their jobs, that their voices aren't important, as important as like minority voices who have been oppressed for longer and they have all this pent-up frustration. And the conservatives have uh, they managed to not only... Um, you know, give the rich, uh, appease the rich with tax breaks and all the rest of it. They they managed to get the working class on their side, the nationalistic working class, by blaming um, immigrants and and other sectors for not taking the working class seriously. And you end up with this cycle where they're playing both sides. And you know, in a world where they. They, they don't really care about these working class people. They're just trying to rile them up so they'll vote for them. And it's only the Labour Party and other left parties that will do anything for working class people. But you play on people's emotions and and they get frustrated and they you tell them who to take it out on. And it's it's a bit of a, a bit of a mess, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, that whole subject is 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 broad, as as you say. You know, it's, um, <laughs> how they've convinced you know the working class to vote against their own interests. You know, it's it's a tale as old as time. You know, blame blame the immigrants. <laughs> yeah. Uh, go for populist nationalism um, uh, and appeal appeal to their heart in that way. You know, make appeal to them as patriots, and and they will. If you say people who do who disagree and think otherwise are. are uh, anti-Britain, you know, all of this sort of rhetoric. 
people putting Britain down, you know, that that uh, tugs on, on people's emotions. And, and yeah, it, it's it, it's it's causing them to make a, effectively an irrational decision to vote for a, a government that will worsen their lives. <laughs> um, but the, the you know the UK press has got a lot to do with that, of course. Absolutely, the, yeah. The majority of the, the press is right wing and owned by um, billionaire tax exiles who are advancing <laughs> their own agenda, and that includes convincing the poor to vote against their own interests because it benefits the rich, it benefits the establishment. Yeah, definitely. That's a that's a big topic. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, okay, should we move on to uh, COVID? Um, so the government response to COVID, I saw there was a report out maybe two or three weeks ago that said the initial response was a disaster. They didn't lock down quick enough. They didn't do enough early on to stop the spread. Um, do you see this report? What do you, what do you think? Yes. Yeah. The two separate, uh, MP select committees, the health select committee and, uh, I can't remember the other one, um, Yes, they produced this report between them and described the government response to the pandemic, uh, certainly at the initial first wave, as the worst public health failure in British history. <laughs> and that's being those committees are chaired by Tories, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's saying something. That's not great. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, obviously that hasn't really led to that much traction in the press. You know, the cut through of even that has not been great. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? Like it's just. They were, they took they spoke about it for two days I think I didn't I didn't even see like I normally watch the Andrew Marr show and I don't really think he even brought that up I think they were saved by some other controversies going on but I can't remember what because there's just so many um... yeah they probably threw a dead cat on the table you know it's the old, uh, <laughs> leak something to the press that will distract them yeah yeah it's uh, it's very clever strategy but yeah. I think from my point of view, working in the airline industry, the borders were open for a long time and I was surprised that nothing was being done about it. Obviously, um, you never want uh, an industry an industry to suffer and you want support to be given, but um, it was obvious that even Donald Trump was shutting borders and and that's all yeah. he did. That's he did nothing else after that to to stop COVID from spreading. <laughs> but he did yeah. that, and not even our government did that in in any sort of reasonable time. And we could see the wave coming from Europe, like almost one by one. It was like you know Eastern Europe, Italy, France, and it's like well, it's gonna come eventually. Like why aren't we doing anything? Yeah, I remember that well, and it was I was all over the stats coming out of China and the, the delay between the uh, cases and the deaths. You know, I could see that yeah. I was like there and I could see the um, like where they were at a given date and then where they actually were in terms of infections uh, and, and compare that to where we were. And this was in a sort of late February. This was around the time when the government was saying, oh, we should, you know, go for herd immunity and um, <laughs> uh, we, British, British public won't want to do a lockdown and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, all this sort of thing. And I was looking at the data in Wuhan, and I'm not like an epidemiologist, but there was one particular person I found who was really useful for it, really good at explaining it. And I'm thinking, this is a disaster. Everyone around me, even like my friends and family, and even even me before I read this, were thinking, oh, yeah, it sounds sensible. Let's go for herd immunity because then uh, it'll be over quicker. And, oh, you know, we just didn't know enough at that point. But we did know what was happening in Italy, which was 
three weeks ahead of us. And, exactly. and the government isn't somebody with a Twitter account following some epidemiologist. It's it's the government, you know. <laughs> it should do a lot better job than than a layperson at, at realizing that it's we should shut down and, and get ahead of it. But instead, like you say, um, complacently waited for it to hit and then locked down too late. Yeah, you think they'd get well, they they would get much more uh detailed information from other governments or across Europe. Maybe that's another failure, the lack of data transfer within Europe. That might be another Brexit thing that we don't really yeah. remember. But uh you'd think well, they would they would want to share something in a public health emergency and they would have known. They just kind of buried their head and didn't really care about it and Boris was all ready to go to India, so he didn't shut the border, and it's, it's all, it's all shocking, shocking behaviour. Yeah, well, I suppose I think internationally with pandemics, in theory, you know, the WHO is supposed to act as a central point of data uh, collection and and uh, yeah. communication, uh, and I think they would have had the data, but apparently, according to this report, you know, even the scientists, even Sage, were on the, initially they were on the. Uh, herd immunity bandwagon you know they were thinking people the the, the psychologists in in the sage group were, were saying that um we wouldn't put up with a, a lockdown that the british people wouldn't accept it yeah and so even then even the even the advice to the politicians was bad um you could argue and so you know if if you so what chose you could give them something of a uh I won't say a free pass but <laughs> um benefit the doubt about the first wave uh, but their behaviour with subsequent waves has, has demonstrably shown that um, they they don't always listen to the science and that they will make political decisions that lead to a lot more people dying than should have. Yeah, and I think that's the worst thing. the worst thing for me was when we had our lockdown in November and nothing really changed. The numbers kind of stalled, but they were still high. And they were like, okay, everybody... Go, go shopping in your high streets for the next two, three weeks and uh, Christmas will yeah. be fine. Like, just go spend money, help the economy. Don't worry about people dying. It's fine. And then, obviously, it was not fine. And after, like, even before Christmas, they said, okay, we need to, like, limit the numbers at Christmas. And then after Christmas, it was locked down again. And it was for a good six months, I think, into June before the the measures finally were lifted, maybe even July. But uh, that was all because of short-term economic gain. And I find that, like, disgusting, frankly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, they, every stage they underestimated what how bad it would be. And, you know, back then, of course, no one was really vaccinated yet, just before Christmas. Exactly, yeah. Um, and, you know, of course, it, the mounting numbers in the hospitals just forced their hand in the end. But, you know, it didn't wasn't necessary to get to that point. Um, and, and Boris Johnson, you know, has been uh, shown to have not wanted a third lockdown. It was the last thing he wanted. It's that it's that uh, just before the second lockdown, when he finally agreed to it, that was when he was saying, just let the bodies pile high. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and he's been three separate independent sources of, of you know, uh, uh, confirmed that he said that and Dominic Cummings has since said that because of these decisions tens of thousands of people have died needlessly and you know, he was in the room <laughs> you know? yeah so you, know, you can you can mistrust him all you want but he's a credible source for that and uh you, you can't deny it based on what actually happened you know we've got one of the worst death rates in the world yeah it's it's really it's really shocking
but uh, I, in in a crumb of defense, I will offer. Um, it's difficult for any party to manage the economy and public health. Obviously, everybody would say public health has to come first, um, but there becomes a point where people will suffer from other consequences of not working, being locked down for too long, etc., um, etc. Et so there are downsides to it, and I don't think any government in charge would have got it right first time uh, in this country. Other governments abroad seem to have done good jobs, but, you know, like, they, they have advantages like New Zealand as a very isolated place. Uh, South Korea did a decent job initially. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's very tough. It's tough to say, but I think it's, as you say, the repeat negligence that's, that's really um, a slap in the face yeah. to everybody. Yeah, and I think in, if in terms of comparing ourselves to other countries, you've got to go with France, Germany, Italy. You know, yeah. densely populated, large countries with with uh, slightly better funded health systems. Um, you know, if you're going to do apples for apples, you've got to go with them. And yeah, even they really struggled and made mistakes. A lot of countries did, and those you know, um, some did better than others. But even even like Germany had a lot of deaths initially. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, you've got to. Uh, assume that the same would have happened regardless of government in the UK. I mean, you could argue that under a Labour government, they would have had less of a priority for business in the economy and more for public health, so they may have shut down earlier. Um, you'll never know, you know, really. We, we can't know that. Yeah, and you have to think that if the Conservative government were uh, quite active with the furlough scheme and uh, other schemes to help people during this time, that a Labour government would have been even more progressive with some social safety nets, but uh, whatever. Yeah. No. It could have been an opportunity for UBI. Exactly. Yeah. UBI. That'll be a topic for another day. <laughs> I think so. That is also huge. Um, um, but Sorry, sorry go you go, you've carried on. I was just going to say about, about that um, choice between the economy or health. Uh, as it transpired, I think it was, if you screw over people's health by opening the economy, that also causes the economy to suffer. Yeah. Exactly. Short-term okay. gains, 100%. Yeah. yeah. And we ended up with, you know, the worst deaths and the worst effect on the economy um, <laughs> out of G7. You know, it's just... So we got the worst of both worlds by the policies chosen by our government. It's like a, a gambler trying to play the slot machines and you're like, just one more spin. Like, the economy will be fine. Just one more spin. And then every time you lose, more people get sick and it just gets worse and worse. And you, you have to quit while you're ahead at some point otherwise you just end up losing everything and i think they lost they lost everything really yeah they definitely took a punt and they're betting your house on it I mean, yeah you know. literally so yeah you want them to succeed but uh in the end you know i think it also came down to just a lack of empathy you know boris yeah. is on the record as saying he doesn't it's only over 80s that are dying <laughs> <laughs> your house that's uh you know raised in value significantly since uh since the pandemic somehow so that's that's also fantastic news for everybody who's not on the housing market yet oh great yeah <laughs> um a couple of questions about the who i love a bit of uh controversy so uh how much do you think they're in uh china's pocket well they are they are a bit for sure <laughs> because china's one of the, is, is the second biggest donor after the u.s 
And the US was threatening under Donald Trump to pull all funding for the WHO in the middle of a pandemic. So <laughs> um, it is a question of funding, fun fundamentally. They are underfunded as an organization and uh, China does uh, significantly prop them up in that regard. So I would, I would definitely argue that the WHO uh, didn't act towards China in the way it should have done, especially at the start of the pandemic. It was far too trusting of them. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it, there's a definite influence there. You can't deny and um, speaking of government reactions, the Chinese government's reaction, which is, you know, a very left government con compared to uh, compared to the UK, but it's also very authoritarian. Um, yeah. <laughs> they covered up a lot. And I think uh, I think I saw something that said that their lack of action or the lack of transparency cost like millions maybe millions how many people have died from covid I, I forget in total across the world uh last i saw it was over four million yeah but that was a while ago so it's going to be higher okay so let's say hundreds of thousands of lives uh were lost because the initial in quote in quotation marks cover up um attempt from china so uh yeah i think it shows that no matter what side you're on it does you know everybody has their own ulterior motives um some people want to save face some people want to give contracts to their buddies but there you go yeah well it, it definitely as an authoritarian dictatorship effectively the the chinese yeah i'm not surprised they covered it up and you know if they cover up lots of stuff you know most chinese people don't know about tiananmen square there's the treatment of the uyghurs this is yeah. just one more thing which about which we should distrust them but yeah it's not a surprise yeah, uh, one of the one of the things they did do was build a ton of hospitals very quickly. Um, so, yeah, gov very gov impressive. Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> we're not you know justifying the authoritarianness of the government. We're just saying there's like it comes with some benefits for the people eventually. Um, yeah, certainly. Yeah, their economy benefits and just quick decisions are made in that sort of environment. That's definitely a positive of uh, a lack of democracy. Yeah, but. Uh, yeah, that's for another time, that debate. <laughs> probably not worth it, yeah. <laughs> no, probably not. Um, okay, so uh, let's talk a bit about education. Uh, would you like to lead us off, Pete? I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, so there's just so many different policy areas you can discuss the, the Conservative government. Um, education's a good one, because particularly people in our generation are acutely aware of the funding uh, as it relates to universities. Um, uh, you know, when I went to uni, in t uh, started in 2000. Four, uh, it was uh, it was about a thousand pounds a year for tuition fees. You know, it, a lot of people hearing that might be quite uh, <laughs> uh, annoyed at me. And you know, I I got lucky in that regard. You know, people before me didn't have to pay anything, but it, obviously then it went up to three thousand. And then when the Tories came in in two thousand and ten with the Liberal Democrats in coalition, they increased it to nine thousand pounds a year, as I'm sure we all know. Yeah. So what that means is that you know if you got a degree in two thousand nine. The total cost of the debt of going to university was uh, about eleven thousand pounds. That was that was me. I went in two thousand and nine. So, GG. So, so yeah, if you went now, it would the same degree would cost you forty five thousand pounds. Yeah, it's crazy. And so the interest rates on student loans is much higher than it was before. It's yeah, before... I think that's partly why it, it means it is that much more. Actually, I think that's partly factored in. But yeah, 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 exactly. There's there's the fact that the course is three times the price, as well as the fact that the student loans accrue. I can't remember what it is. Is it like two percent plus 
the interest rate rather no four percent plus the interest rate rather than one percent plus the interest rate which is mistaken i thought it was the uh, it was that uh, whatever percentage plus inter, uh, inflation <laughs> yeah yeah sorry that's what i meant so yeah it's one percent plus inflation for us so 1.1 percent at the moment and for my oh, brother who went three years after me it's four percent plus inflation which is massively different so all of a sudden it's not a competitive loan anymore you can get much better rates on a loan of that size on the high street yeah sudden. but the only benefit is you don't have to pay it back until you're earning above a certain wage <laughs> that's true so it, it's poor as a product that you've just sold to your your young people going into education um it's it's dire it's a dire attitude overall i think you know it, it, it the whole forcing people to pay that much money for their um, higher education is tantamount to saying that if you go to university and get a degree there is absolutely no deferred benefit to the rest of society the only benefit <laughs> is you and therefore you need to pay for it all uh, <laughs> yeah of course decisions are being made by people who went to oxford for free exactly <laughs> yeah it's, it's just they will never know the consequences <laughs> of what they're doing and mm. and it's like you're an 18 year old you don't really know what you want to do you know you need to try some things and it's i think the, the whole system's crazy to try and get people shoehorned into uh you know producing labor value as early as possible whereas we need to give people more time to find what they like doing and the opportunities and not make it um not make it prohibitively expensive to to go on that process and find what you really enjoy doing and and then in the end you just become a wage slave where you have to take uh the job you can if it's not the job you want just to start paying for paying your bills and you, you get stuck that's unfortunately how it is at the moment yeah and student loans absolutely exacerbate that situation you know you've got this debt to pay back and it's it reduces your quality of life effectively you know it's however many hundreds of pounds out of your wage every month that you wouldn't otherwise have to have have had to pay if you had been born a few years earlier you know yeah so your whole the whole generation is basically x percentage worse off out of their pay packet for a huge swathe of their career and that's taking money out of the economy it's reducing their quality of life and their opportunities to uh, buy a house start a family go on nice holidays it's it's everything, you know, all because you chose to go and better yourself for getting a degree in education that contributes to society and the economy. But apparently you're the only benefactor, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, crazy. And it's... Oh, what was I going to say? I've forgotten what I was going to say. Um, yeah, it's gone. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so that's, that's the university side of education. You know, we're all quite well aware of that. There's now a generation and... You know, uh, schools has has seen uh, drops in funding per pupil. It's uh, um, since 2010, the drop in spending has been the worst since the 1970s, apparently. And uh, this is per a study by the Institute for Fiscal Studies. Um, you know, the schools of of now 70% academies, which are for-profit organisations, which are owned and run by private organisations. You know, subsidised by the UK government. Uh, obviously. Uh, students and uh, parents aren't paying fees to these schools but you know they're being run by private organizations who are, need to make a profit and have shareholders <laughs> yeah uh, so that's not especially good and it's unsurprising that you know people's education might be suffering uh, well, when I, you're 
primary motive is profit rather than creating the best education environment you can, then, you know, people are going to gravitate towards profit. That's just the way the system is set up. Yeah, oh, that's that's capitalism, isn't it? And uh, yeah. it's essential services being put in the hands of, of private interests, which is almost always leads to their degradation. And that's, uh, you know, a, a, a key tenant of uh, neoliberal capitalist um, fiscal policy, <laughs> which we can discuss, you know, if we ever do a subject on a podcast on universal basic income, because it all factors into that. But Yeah, because they would, well, like, we will do this properly one day, but their argument is that, um, you know, competition in private markets increases uh, quality. Um, but obviously, we can see that in this situation where there is inelastic demand for education and children have to go to school somewhere, there's just no shortage of income. So there is no incentive to make it better. That's an incentive to make profit and cream as much yeah. as they can. Absolutely. The concept of, of the market just doesn't apply in certain areas of society. You know, uh, if it's an essential service and you have to artificially create a market somehow or just there isn't one because of the way it is, like with schools, then, yeah, uh, fundamentally, the people the re people receiving that service or that product will suffer. Uh, well, that's the taxpayers in the case of, of schools. Yeah. Uh, it needs to be, uh, needs to be uh, yeah, decommodified put in the hands of gov yeah. government not-for-profit institutions yeah i mean the the other argument for privatization is that governments are bad at running things but that, you know <laughs> i just don't that's that's been borne out you know i think the the vaccine rollout which was largely in the hands of of the government yeah. <laughs> in the nhs uh, has gone absolutely amazingly whereas the test and trace scheme for example which is in, entirely in private hands has been yeah. a complete disaster <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's, it, occasionally it is true, I'm sure, and it depends on what it is. But as far as essential services are concerned, artificially creating a market for private interest to step in is, is not not demonstrated a good value for money. Uh, no, absolutely not. Same as said for schools. Um, uh, yeah, carry on. Uh, where were so, we? Yep. Yeah, I mean, as far as education goes, it's um, well, it's just generally the whole... UK education system is is uh, fragmented. You know, there's private schools, there's grammar schools, there's comprehensive schools, there's religious schools, and then there's academies which which cross loads of those. Um, it's you know what what education you end up getting is a bit of a, a, a postcode lottery, to be honest. Yeah, uh, that's why obviously certain neighbourhoods houses are worth more money because they're next to a nice school. But you know, we should really aim for something that's a bit more consistent and high value to, to all peoples rather than this this random choice that people seem to have to make when their kids are going to school. Absolutely. Um, personally, I think we should be like Denmark and have a fully comprehensive system where there are no private schools, there are no grammar schools. Everyone gets the same thing and everyone has an interest in that education being good for everybody. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think private schools... Um... It's it's kind of like uh, pay to uh, pay to win uh, video games where you can buy better equipment and better better stats. Uh, That's a great analogy. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it's exactly like that. Yeah. <laughs> and if you're a conservative government, your one of your uh, ideals is meritocracy. Exactly. And if you permit that uh, private schools to exist, 
and, and with charitable status, I might add, so they don't have to pay as much tax, <laughs> given that they're a private profit-making organization. Yeah. Um, yeah, allowing that system to, to continue is antithetical to meritocracy. And, you know, that, that feeds into all sorts of other things like uh, inheritance tax and all the rest. But, uh, yeah, it, it's hypocritical, to say the least. <laughs> exactly. We'll get into why the meritocracy is a myth in another episode. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> so, again, another massive subject. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, I did remember something that I wanted to bring up. Uh, it was about essential workers. Um, so, under... Well, we've seen the... Um, what society deems essential workers being people who work as on the front line, doctors, nurses, healthcare assistants, um, people who drive lorries, people who work in supermarkets, uh, and yeah, basically people working on any essential goods and services. And these people seem to be the least rewarded, uh, the least um, appreciated group of people. And this government... Uh, shirked them of their pay rise the nurses and and the nhs staff in general that was that was another thing that uh, a lot of people didn't like and something that i think they didn't get enough grief for yeah yeah i agree it's again it's about cut through and it's about the media but um yeah the treatment of like the nhs staff after they've basically just fought a war for us hmm. and come out the other side scarred mentally a lot of people are leaving the industry because they just can't do it anymore and the pay just doesn't reflect the hours and the effort and the emotional like cost of their jobs and yeah after all that to be said uh, initially you get a one percent pay rise which was appalling you know <laughs> <laughs> they did u-turn and then eventually offer a three percent pay rise over five years or something and it was that was still less than inflation you know so and that still was a... before inflation exploded <laughs> yes that was back back then and of course yeah before it was, became apparent in the opening of society again what inflation would be and as it transpires very bad you know <laughs> it, it's just generally speaking though you know the wages of of nurses and uh essential workers in in public service since 2010 are, are still lower than they were you know in 2010 yeah the uh the i can't remember the, the exact numbers but um my girlfriend who's a physiotherapist she she would be earning something like six thousand pounds more money if she was on the wages she would have been on had it, it just carried on from what she people were being paid in 2010 you know? wow. <laughs> so it's not a great way to treat essential workers and it's sooner or later going to become a serious problem because they're going to start going on strike and this is already happening with the GPs who are considering strike action because of the treatment they're getting from Sajid Javid yeah. over the lack of face-to-face -face, uh, appointments. Uh, they're just being treated appallingly for, despite uh, a huge cost to themselves personally because they've taken up this vocation. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, you, it's like anything. The society should reward uh, the people who provide the most value to it, you know, uh, accordingly. So... You know, bin men, for example, should be paid more money. Could you imagine if the bin men went on strike? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or people who ran the 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 grid, the power grid, or you know, all of these, all of yeah. these sectors that are vital, and yet it's the uh, you know the people who've benefited the most are the financial industries, the tech companies. The it's it's absolutely crazy, like where people put value in the economy compared to what is actually required to have the world yeah. run smoothly and there's a massive disconnect there i think 
Yeah, and but the thing is, you'd need to have a government that ideologically uh, agreed with that to make a change. At the moment, their 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 fake idea of meritocracy and that people who earn lots of money deserve it versus <laughs> somehow nurses don't. <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, you'd need to have an ideological change in government for that to be fixed. So speaking of ideological change in government. Um... Is there anything on the horizon that that gives you any sort of um, optimism? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wish there was. I mean, uh, it's always nice to have a bit of hope. But um, so the first past the post system in the UK is not favourable to Labour getting in power, shall we say? Yeah. Um, they kind of sowed their own destruction by uh, uh, going down the route of. Uh, devolution in scotland wales and northern ireland and this has led to the 50 seats in scotland you know politically for whatever reason have now gone to the smp mm -hmm. they're, they're dominated by the smp in scotland which means to win in the uk and get more than uh was it 320 mps they need to get a majority uh, to get that without scotland and now without the red wall is just it's very unlikely to say the least you know i mean the conservatives uh, are still polling at like nearly 40% despite everything that's happened over the last 18 months. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? I don't <laughs> I don't understand. No, uh, it's you know, it's an element of of people like well, I voted for this, so let's see how it goes. And that that may last for a while until it starts really hitting him in the pocket, you know, the most recent <laughs> um wages issues that we're having um people are still poorer than they were before the government's got in power. Uh the We've got had the worst wage stagnation um, since 2008 in the last 200 years. You know, wages have grown at the slowest rate since the Napoleonic Wars. Yeah. Um, and now we're getting massive inflation post-Brexit and because of the pandemic. Uh, what the government does about this will have an effect on what people vote for next time. And I can't see them fixing it because it's systemic and it's ideological. Um, so it may turn the polls. But nonetheless, even if it does, the, the Labour Party is, has got tons and tons of votes piling up uselessly in places like London, while the Tories can win by small margins all across the country. Yeah. Uh, and this is because of their consistent support from, generally speaking, uh, older, richer, more well-off, baby boomer generation type voters. Um, the average age at which you become a Tory voter uh, is actually dropped now. I think it's uh, at the last election in 2019, it was something like uh, it dropped down to 38. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, although before that, I think it was 47. So, but generally speaking, because of that huge demographic um, uh, group at the older age groups and the fact that you get more conservative the older you get, they've got this base of support that is very reliable and which would be hard to overcome with the first-past-the-post system. The only chance that I think we have of, of getting rid of the Conservatives from government before the UK breaks up and Scotland leaves is um, if the, the Labour Party agrees with other left-wing parties to have a progressive coalition and to step down in places like, like the Brexit Party did um, at the last election in certain key seats so that the, another party can win it versus the... Uh, the Conservatives, yeah, uh, and unless they come up with that kind of alliance, uh, it's just the, the, and the, I can't see it happening, unfortunately, which is which is very depressing. Yeah, it's it's getting to the stage where you're wondering what does the Conservative Party have to do to get people to not vote for them anymore. It's like they're trying, they're they're like pushing it 
and they're like, oh, we can get away with this. Let's do this. Oh, look, they're, they're still here. Let's let's do something else, like, bloody evil and see what we can get away with and just, just keep yeah. getting away with it. They could keep getting away with it because the right-wing press are on their side fundamentally and, and you know, there's an element of if you voted for the current situation, you've got a, sta- a stake in it. So it's going to take a while for that to wear off. I saw um, I saw something about Jeremy Corbyn and about the back in when he was in charge and he was um, uh, he had to step down as the party leader because of the in quotes anti-Semitism uh, in the Labour Party, um, and it's all like as soon as uh, any. Um, left-leaning resistance comes up against the Tories, the press just destroy them. There's, there's just It was a genuine threat to the Conservative Party and they invented a problem in the Labour Party of anti-Semitism and got Jeremy Corbyn sacked effectively and just crushed the movement in its tracks. And it was... It's just so... Such a shame. Like, it, people can't see past the, the manipulation. Yeah, it became very opaque with that, and it, there was there was um, elements of uh, overegging the problem of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party because it's it's riven by conflict. You know, it's got the generally more centrist, uh, somewhat more liberal, neoliberal, economically but still socially left people on the right. So what you might describe previously as Blairites. Yeah. On the left, of course, when Jeremy Corbyn came in, the membership well to like half a million people and they had all this um, positive energy and aspirations for a fair and decent just socialist <laughs> uh, society that we could have so uh, yeah but a good way to defeat that is to, to smear it and to scaremonger and and the right-wing press went to town um, that said that there was a problem with anti-semitism you know I mean in in the conservative party there's a massive problem with Islamophobia but <laughs> nobody cares but, about that. Yeah, it's partly how it's covered in the press, but it's also, to be fair, as well, Jeremy Corbyn, personally, I feel, did not competently handle this problem of anti-Semitism. And, and what he should have done in retrospect is what, you know, uh, uh, like him or not, Keir Starmer did. He, he clamped down on it severely. You know, he if anyone did said anything, even slightly could be perceived as anti-Semitic, they were fired. You know, they were, they were gone. Yeah. And so you could argue that's quite unfair but it is the water you're swimming in. And so you've got to be able to deal with that in the right way to, to um, reduce it, minimise it, get rid of it as a problem. It and is that... unbelievable. The double standards are astonishing. And it reminds me of um, if you take Obama and Trump, Obama had to be squeaky clean to get elected as the first you know, minority background president. Donald Trump, literally, scandal after scandal, it does not matter. He just washes off him like water off a duck's back. And it's just crazy how how, how, how they just get away with it, how people allow this to happen. It's just, I can't understand. I mean, it, the two-party system in both countries is a, is a factor in that, because if you are disinclined to vote for socialist policies... For whatever reason you don't like it uh, even whether rightly or wrongly uh, <laughs> if you hate boris johnson <laughs> you still have to vote for him because you you don't want the alternative yeah there is that as well but uh, yeah the double standards in the media especially in the uk are appalling i mean the the energy cap we've had recently that's come into the fore because gas prices have gone up so much 
actually quite a good policy. It's protecting people. It's a good thing that the government are doing. But it was a Labour idea that was stolen by the Conservatives, which at the time, when it's proposed by Ed Miliband, was, was described as a Marxist manipulation <laughs> of the market. You know, the Conservative Party does it. It's fine. It's good. It's oh, great. yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, so you're right. The double standards are uh, stark. <laughs> Amazing. I always, it always makes me laugh when people throw out accusations like that. There is no such thing as a free market. There never has been. And it's still failing. So there you go. Yes. Well, there's plenty of socialism for corporations and the rich. Yeah. There's plenty of bailouts for that. Although I suppose the recent furlough scheme is, is at least, it, while it was a bailout of business, it, it has, is one of, a few, one of the few good things you could say about the government and how they dealt with the pandemic is that the furlough scheme... Well, you know, you could argue it could have been implemented better or slightly differently. It clearly has prevented scarring in the economy with people losing their jobs and businesses going under forever. So that's one good thing, at least. They, when they did socialism, <laughs> it was a good thing. Who knew? <laughs> it's funny because they, they did socialism, but they did it for the businesses to make sure the economy didn't tank, not for the people. This is like, this is the difference, I think. They're, they're doing it for other interests and... Thankfully, it aligned with the interests of the people in this situation, but it very rarely does. So that's just... That's true. It's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, got lucky with that one. And I'm yeah, big fan of furlough. And for me, it just proves that uh, there is money there to fund massive social change. But uh, that's yeah. for another time. The magic money tree exists. It's been proven. Yep, confirmed. Um I was looking at a few other uh, elections that were taking place. Canada had an election and Germany as well had an election recently. And it struck me how uh, wide the variety of choices in those countries and how many votes each party got. So um, it feels like a, a better working democracy when you have actual choice. Um, what, do, what do you think about that? Yeah, so certainly like Germany, for example, I'm not sure about Canada. Um, Germany has proportional representation. So, uh, you know, the number of votes a party gets is reflected by the number of representatives in the parliament. Um, well, that forces its coalition. <laughs> what, what a crazy idea. Madness. Uh, <laughs> go ahead, throw your vote away. <laughs> um, but yeah, so in Germany, it forces it compromise between um, different interests and, and coalitions and a government by much more by consent than by default yeah um and so the outcomes of that are less extreme in, in terms of swinging from one uh, side of the uh the spectrum to the other you know right from right to left um so that is definitely a much better way of doing it you got more choice uh, uh i would like to see that in the uk and if there was that um a progressive coalition between Labour and other left-wing parties, it would probably have to be on the basis that upon getting into power, they would immediately implement um, PR and then call another election. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, That's the kind of thing it would need for it to be, to get through and for it to work. And that would be great to see in the UK. I think that would be, we would have a lot, a much more representative democracy and have a lot less of this um, uh, governments run by special interests effectively. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, that's a a very um, optimistic idea, and I'm, I'm a big fan of the idea, but uh, yeah, 
Yeah, they they blew it. The Liberal Democrats they could, they managed to get a referendum on a new voting system, and they compromised with the Tories to go from PR to alternative voting, which actually is less good, shall we say? It's still probably better than first past the post, but it wasn't what they wanted, and they caved, and so they lost the referendum, and here we are. And they caved on a lot of issues, including <laughs> the student. Uh... The tuition fees and all the rest of it. But, uh, yeah, their trust is from the millennials just won't vote for them, I don't think. No, <laughs> Again, this is the problem. Fair. Like a, a reasonable, like center, they're, they're probably center right, to be fair. They're not really left, but they're more progressive than the conservatives. But even there, they're, they're done. Like they're, they'll need a new generation or a new leadership or some proof of trust to win people back over again which i don't see how they're going to be able to do if they never get in power in the first place yeah i mean it might be that in theory they could be king makers again one day and if, if they get enough votes stolen from the conservatives in their blue wall there's a lot of uh liberalization of the home counties for example around london where you know yes. relatively progressive people are moving out of london to buy a house uh and taking the votes with them which yes is... buckinghamshire had a liberal winner didn't they Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's partly because of that demographic trend and partly because of stuff like HS2 and all the rest of it. Yeah, but... HS2 was the, was the big one. Mm. But, it, it, you know, who knows what effect that will have in future elections, and uh, I guess we'll see. Indeed. Well, thanks, Pete. That's, that's We've done about an hour now. Um, hopefully there'll be some more more happy news coming forward from the political world, but... Uh, as it stands, I think we are learning a lot of hard lessons about the fact that the Tories don't actually care about anybody except themselves and their mates, and uh, it's not going to get better. And if you keep voting for them, so there you go. What do you What do you have to say? To summarize things up. Yeah, I agree. It's an interesting time in history. You know, we, we are definitely not in a boring part of of, uh, of history, and we're looking at. If people who are paying attention should be able to realise that actually, if you have a choice, you really should vote for a party that has your interests uh, in mind rather than the current lot. And and there's lots of evidence that you can look to to really make that decision. And hopefully, what we've discussed today is just scratching the surface. Really, it really is. I'm so <laughs> depressed after reading everything to prepare for this. <laughs> I was living in a nice ignorant bliss, which is which was great. But uh, yeah, hopefully, we've helped open people's eyes a little bit and. Um, you know, if you're going to vote for the Conservative Party, uh, at least you know what you're doing now. Yeah, we just need more Gen Z voters and uh, eventually we'll topple them, eventually. <laughs> yeah, if we can get them to the polls, we need something on someone on TikTok to get them to do it. Oh, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. <laughs> well, oh, well, thanks very much, Pete. Uh, it's been great, as always. Um, cool. Lots thanks of exciting topics coming up. Uh and yeah, well, we should be back sooner than last time. We've had a bit of a break, so uh, we'll try and keep this up a little bit more regularly. But yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, Peter, for joining. No problem. Thanks a lot. Cheers, everyone. Uh, hope you enjoyed and goodbye. Be sure to check out the SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com forward slash public discord pod. Follow for the latest uploads. You can also find us on iTunes podcasts and Google podcasts. Uh, check out the YouTube channel, link is on the SoundCloud page and in the description. And make sure you join the Discord server where you can take part in episodes live. Thanks everyone for listening and see you next time.